your body is evolutionarily expecting you to exercise and you might not like it. And so if you don't do it, your body goes into a state of disease or decay in the same way that your body expects sunshine and exercise and healthy foods. Your body is evolutionarily adapted to expect deliberate cold exposure. You got to give it to your body in order to maintain the balance of metabolic mechanisms that your body is designed for. So recently I had the pleasure of sitting down with Thomas Seeger, with Dr. Thomas Seeger, I should say, who teaches engineering business practices at Arizona State University. He's also the co-founder of the Morosco Forge Ice Bath Company. He's one of those guys who can gently flutter across seven or eight, 12, 20, 57 different disciplines seamlessly. One of those disciplines he knows really, really well is cold explosion. He can weave human connection and pair bonding and relate it back to cold exposure, whilst also talking about the male and female hormonal benefits of cold exposure. It's amazing. Really, really fascinating guy. We're both big fans of Abraham Maslow, so I thought it would be fitting to get this podcast properly framed with a quote from the man himself. So, Abraham Maslow once said, in any given moment, we have two options, to step forward into growth or to step back into safety. There's nothing like the cold to foster a sense of growth and becoming. With that, here's my conversation with Dr. Thomas Seeger. Thomas, my first question for you is the most important one of the day. It's, did you get in cold water this morning? Not yet. Um, Not yet. It's 7.30 in the morning here in <laughs> Phoenix, and I've been, you know, doing all my emails uh, this morning, and I just emerged from, like, the, you know, the black hole of inbox, and I was like, oh, wait a second. I'm supposed to talk to Ben right now. You're in the <laughs> UK. I'm just waking up. And thank goodness that, you know, this is over Riverside, so I can put on a halfway decent shirt, look like a scientist, and no one needs to know that I'm still in my pajama bottoms. <laughs> well, it takes one to know one. Me too. All good. It's the top half of the camera, the benefit, right? So um, I'd, love, uh, I'd love to understand how you actually came to, how did your journey start with cold exposure? Uh, that's a good question. I read a book. Um, you know, I was reading everything about self-improvement that I could get my hands on. I had just separated from my wife, my kids who now were at the university, they'd finished high school. And um, I guess you could call it a midlife crisis of sorts. I realized that I hadn't been taking care of myself and it had impacted my marriage, it had impacted my health. I'd spent so much time as a dad Try, you know, concerned about my son's health. He's type one diabetic. He was diagnosed when he was six years old. Concerned about my kid's health that I'd let my own kind of go to crap. When I separated from my wife, I was uh, early 50s, 52 maybe, uh, or maybe a little bit younger than that, 49, 50. I was way overweight. And I had to really get my act together to think about what is the the second half of my life gonna be like now that I've um, pretty much completed the task of raising a family. I didn't like the way I looked. I didn't like the way I showed up in the world. So I was reading everything about self-improvement. I was doing um, some fasting, some keto. I had read uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb's Anti-Fragile about, uh, well, 
studying resilience and about how variability can make us stronger. And so I'd worked some intermittent fasting into my diet and I'd lost a lot of weight. But this one book that I read uh, before Mike Cernovich became a controversial political journalist and a little bit of an idiot, he wrote a book called Gorilla Mindset. And in this book, he said, you should take cold showers. So I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to try anything. I have a rule about advice. If you get advice from someone whom you respect, you try it. That is the only advice worth taking is the kind that comes from a successful person whom you admire who said, this is what worked for me. But then you try it. If it doesn't work for you, then it doesn't apply. So I said, okay, I'm going to try cold showers. And I hated every second of them. They make me angry. I don't like them at all. I was in there, you know, screw you, Cernovich, like just having a miserable time. But I kept it up because at the time I thought, well, if I hate it, it must be good for me. You know, now I'm not saying that this is right, Ben, but I I had this mentality that I was going to have to step outside my comfort zone in order to change who I was. And the cold showers were certainly doing that for me. Well, then a former student of mine, Jason, who became my founding partner at Morosco, he said, well, have you ever tried the ice bath? I had no idea. He said, have you ever heard of Wim Hof? I said, no idea. He said, well, you know, a bunch of us are getting together and we're going to buy like 200 pounds of ice and we're going to set up this horse trough and we're going to give it a shot and do some breath work and some yoga and, you know, some crazy burning man group hippie stuff or something. So sign me up for that. And when I got in up to my neck, freezing water, you know, with the ice cubes floating, completely different experience. It turns out there's some good research out of Finland and nobody seems to know more about whole body cold water immersion than the Finns at the University of Uulu, or I can't even say it right, you know, but they're up at the Arctic Circle and they have the best scientists on cold water therapy. And they compared partial body to whole body cold water immersion. Partial body ups your heart rate. It stimulates the central nervous system. So everything up regulates, but whole body down regulates. Once you get in, you experience the gas reflex, you activate the fight or flight response. But once you get in all the way up to your neck and you structure your breathing, something called the dive reflex shows up. The dive reflex will lower your oxygen consumption by reducing your metabolic rate. It will take your heart rate down. It is the mammalian evolutionary response to prepare your body to, I don't know, go down and and get the shellfish or the lobsters or whatever it is you need. And then with that metabolic slowing, your brain goes down into a meditative state involuntarily. I love the whole body. And Ben, I got to show you something. This has nothing to do with cold water therapy, but I got to show you what's happening outside my window right now. So, you know, I'm up on the 29th floor and today is window washing day. Love so, it. Who's your, your mate's a brave man. Right? They're, they're hanging off a rope from the top of my <laughs> building and it is their job to squeegee my windows while you and I are talking about ice baths. And, and well, I got to say, Ben, I feel a little bit like a wimp saying how, yeah, you know, I stare into those ice chunks and I get my fight or flight <laughs> response going and it's really good for me. It builds my psychological resilience. All I do is get in the water. These guys are, are like 
window washing for their lives. Um, yes, but that's a really good segue because how many people have actually the discomfort that our ancestors had in their everyday life? Maybe you, your, your friend who does the windows does. Yourself, you do with your sort of voluntary ice exposure but or cold exposure, to say. But how important is fostering some discomfort into the human existence? Great question. Um, I think about my grandfather sometimes. You might have written, uh, read some of the articles I posted on my Substack about him. Because when he was a boy, he lost his dad. He was six years old. His father dies. Now, this is a traumatic experience for a little boy. And I think about what it must have been like to be my grandfather because his name was Thomas, and I'm named for him. Well, if I went up to my grandfather now, you know, who passed away decades ago, and I said, hey, uh, Grampy, you know what I do? I get into the ice bath every morning to challenge myself psychology. He would laugh. He would say, I don't need a nice bath. I've had plenty of discomfort in my life. He grew up in Maine, for goodness sakes. An ice bath, he, he would likely scoff. His ancestors, and he, they didn't need discomfort. He raised his kids during the Depression. He sent them off to war. And he earned, you know, at least in his mind, a, a modicum of comfort. And yet... Thank goodness, Grampy, and thank you for, you know, creating a society in which I have central air conditioning. I have, you know, heated leather seats in my SUV. Grampy drove a Model T around in Maine in the wintertime to try and run a canning company in a hardware store. He didn't need an ice bath. He had it built into his lifestyle. But we are not biologically so much different than our ancient ancestors just because we have SUVs that they never had and we have pre-prepared meals that they never had doesn't mean that our bodies respond well to the comforts that we're sort of wired to desire. We expect cold exposure. That is, our bodies are evolutionarily adapted to the cold in a way where if we don't get it, then we get sick. It's very much like exercise. Your body is evolutionarily expecting you to exercise. And you might not like it. And so if you don't do it, your body goes into a state of disease or decay. In the same way that your body expects sunshine and exercise and healthy foods, your body is evolutionarily adapted to expect deliberate cold exposure. You got to give it to your body in order to maintain the balance of metabolic mechanisms that your body is designed for. In particular, you need brown fat. Brown fat is not just sort of a nice to have kind of thing. It is an essential organ. It is the organ that keeps us warm without shivering. So brown fat creates non-shivering thermogenesis. It will burn the glucose and it will burn the lipids in your bloodstream to create heat when you're exposed to cold. Most people don't have any, at least in the United Kingdom, in the United States, because we do live such warm, comfortable lives. Our body responds by subtracting the brown fat from our bodies because we're not using it. So it's by age 45, it's something like fewer than 5% of Americans have any detectable brown fat at all. It can be restored by the cold, but because they're not getting regular cold exposure, they just don't have it. The tragedy is that brown fat is not just for thermogenesis. It's also an essential secretory organ. 
the brown fat produces more thyroid hormone than the thyroid gland does. So the thyroid and the brown fat work together to govern your metabolism. And without brown fat, you typically become metabolically dysregulated. Insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's, these are all slow moving but eventual consequences of failing to get cold, failing to activate your brown fat, of allowing your metabolism to dysregulate. How do you know when you've activate, you're activating brown fat? And it, it, is, you, is there a conversion of, can you convert beige fat or different forms of fat into brown fat? I mean, how, how do you know when you, you got enough cold exposure to be doing that? It takes about seven, maybe 10 days of regular cold exposure to recruit new brown fat, to, to acclimate your body to the cold. So how do you know if you're doing it right? If you're just beginning, go cold enough to gasp. So you, you sort of go into the ice bath or you go into the, I don't know, the North Sea. I'm not sure exactly where you are, man. You could go into the English Channel or something. That's cold and enough. You, I'm sure of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And if you feel the, if you feel that, that anxiety response, you know, you're cold enough and then go long enough to shiver because most of us don't have the brown fat, at least until we become cold acclimated again, babies. All they have is brown fat. I'm, I, what I mean is their muscles are not sufficiently developed to shiver. And so they rely on brown fat to keep them warm. They have copious quantities of brown fat. But as we age, we gradually lose it. Children are great in the cold. But as adults, you know, we'll get into the, let's call it the English Channel. It'll be 15 degrees C, which isn't really cold at all. And yet we're like, oh, my gosh. Once you feel your muscles begin to shiver, you know you have activated the thermogenesis, the thermogenetic response inside your body, and you have signaled your nervous system to recruit new brown fat. After you become acclimated, that rule of thumb no longer applies in the same way. You might, you know, uh, for me, it's about six or seven degrees C. So maybe 40 degrees Fahrenheit in uh, the US. Anything above that is like bathwater. It's just boring. I don't get the same kind of, you know, activation because my body is acclimated in several ways that allows me to stay comfortable in the cold. Once you become acclimated, you don't need to go long enough to shiver. You might. But just your regular practice of cold water therapy is going to keep that brown fat active inside your body. Uh, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful insight. We were, my partner Eloise and I were in Finland last week and we were swimming in the Baltic and it was minus 13 outside at night and you get out <laughs> of the water, which is, I, I don't even know how cold, but freezing, freezing. And the drips dripping off you, you can, they're forming to ice before they hit the floor. It was, that was different different level of it for us were you in the dark that was it yeah so we were big fans of cold water immersion big fans of sauna therapy and actually that's go to finland it's the best place for it we learned so much but we um going from hot to cold a lot of the time and that time in particular we were it was in the dark yeah um so very cold last time i was in finland was in rovaniemi which took me two weeks to learn how to say um, well, well done. And so, that's you know, an achievement. 
That's right. It was for a conference. It was sparted by, or sponsored by NATO. You know that um, I'm a professor of sustainable engineering at Arizona State University, and I work in particular on resilient infrastructure systems. So how do we protect the infrastructure systems and what do we do after the catastrophe or after the disaster to bring them back online? So there was this NATO conference and it was held, you know, it was about the Arctic and infrastructure in the Arctic and it was held in Rovaniemi in December. So only sort of the bravest of scientists are gonna go fly to Helsinki. Then I get one of those little planes that takes me up to Rovaniemi. It's the closest I've ever been to the Arctic Circle. They've got all the displays in the airport about Santa's workshop, just to remind you how close you are to the North Pole. And I'm checking into the hotel and all I have is a scarf, a sweater, and, and kind of a, a raincoat. And they're making fun of me like, like I'm going to freeze to death, you know, in Finland. I said, I've got an ice bath for that. I skied all over the, you know, the little hotel resort doing my Nordic skiing. I had a great time. One of the comforts of being cold acclimated is that these temperatures, you know, minus 10 C, doesn't bother you anymore. You put on a hat, you put on some gloves, I don't know, maybe a sweater, and you feel like like our ancestors must have felt. You know, those who mm. were uh, living through the Ice Age when they were eking out an existence between the glacier and the ocean, they didn't mind the cold the way that we complain about it today because their bodies were already adapted. And I was pretty happy to get up to Finland and feel comfortable. Well, I mean, yeah, I would highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in this space. So many different tangents I want to go down. I mean, the question around, around the brown fat, and you mentioned the link between Alzheimer's. I'd love, my understanding is that when you can stimulate brown fat, you get a, for lack of a better terminology, an uptick in mitochondrial function. Am I right in saying? Correct. I'd love, I'd love to extend, understand more about that. The fastest way to stimulate mitobiogenesis, so this is the creation of new mitochondria, is cold water therapy. Because brown fat is packed with mitochondria. Its principal purpose is to convert the chemical energy in blood glucose or blood lipids into heat. And it's the mitochondria that do that. So white fat cells, with their principal purpose is to store energy. And they don't have a lot of mitochondria at all. But brown fat have thousands of mitochondria. And each mitochondria organelle contains multiple copies of its own DNA. And this is something that, you know, they never taught me in high school microbiology or whatever the heck I took, you know, back in the early 80s. They didn't tell me that mitochondria have their own DNA. But as a consequence of working, as a consequence of doing this energy conversion for the body, the mitochondrial DNA can become damaged. When you stimulate mitobiogenesis, your body has mechanisms for selecting those mitochondria with the greatest like, uh, genetic DNA integrity and replicating them in your body so that it ups the quality and the quantity of your mitochondria. Now, this is a terrific thing because life is a constant flow of energy. You and I don't exist as, as living creatures without this constant thermodynamic flow of energy through our mitochondria. There are so many theories of aging, and most of them focus on what's happening in the DNA in the nucleus, the DNA that's involved in sexual reproduction. They say, well, you gotta look at your telomere length, or you gotta look at your DNA methylation. 
or you got to look at whatever is going on with some nucleic genetic degradation. None of that correlates very well to mortality. So it doesn't improve on chronological age as a measure of biological age. But the mitochondria, as the mitochondria decline in their quality, all of the um, diseases that are associated with old age, they go up. That is, Alzheimer's is one. Uh, heart disease is another. Um, these are diseases that are related or associated with metabolic dysregulation. Fixing your mitochondria will help fix the uh, or reduce the risk of these so-called age-related diseases. So you get into the cold water therapy, you stimulate your mitobiogenesis, and it's like aging yourself in reverse, at least biologically speaking. The difficulty is it's hard to measure the mitochondria DNA. I mean, what are you going to sample? Which strand are you going to select? Because in the nucleus, each cell has one set of DNA, and that's it. It's simpler to look there. But if you're going to get mitochondria, and there are thousands of mitochondria with multiple copies of DNA, it's harder to get a sense of, well, how good is my mitochondrial DNA? So energetic measures are likely an improvement on biological age compared to these material measures in the nucleus, but we haven't developed reliable energetic measures yet. Well, I think if you, uh, I mean, it's just like we can't have a chemical signature for autophagy yet, but, uh, you know, there's all these things we can't quite quantify. Um, the, I was reading a transcript from a Huberman podcast and he, he was talking about how fertility is a really good thing to optimize for. If you, if you optimize for fertility, you usually get the aesthetics, you get all the downstream effects of everything else as well. What um, a great point. So how do we optimize for fertility, Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. It, I think it's, it's a really, and I think, I mean, the inverse is you see lots of people um, optimize for aesthetic and sort of your traditional bodybuilding approach or whatever it is, and they left chronically stressed and their hormones are out of whack and unhealthily, um, look great externally, but unhealthy from intern, internally. So if, Fertility is a, if fertility is a great thing to optimize for, how can um, cold exposure and um, uh, how can cold exposure affect the male endocrine system, I think, uh, is, is the tangent I'd love you to go down, if it's okay. Let's talk about men first, then. Um, for me, this was an accident. Um, I mean, take, let me take you back to, I'm in my early 50s. I've lost a lot of weight. I used to be 250 pounds. I don't even know how many stone that is, or, you know, whatever measure you use yeah. for that in the United Kingdom. But I was obese. I had dropped 50 pounds, uh, whatever that is in kilo. I got myself down into the 190s, which is just a little overweight and a lot healthier. And so I got my male panel blood work done, you know, get my cholesterol and just check all those boxes. They draw my blood and they tell me how I'm looking inside. My prostate-specific antigen came back high. And so I had to do some research. The last thing I wanted to do was go see a urologist because when you get a PSI, a PSA at my age, or at the age I was when I was taking this test, and it's over seven, they're going to say, well, we should do a biopsy. 
I hadn't had a prostate exam in decades. And so all these other symptoms that, you know, was I having difficulty urination? I mean, I didn't even know Ben anymore because I was so paranoid in my catastrophic mind that I was going to die of prostate cancer. And I'm not saying I had cancer. I'm saying these are the fears that occur to you when, when you get an unreliable marker of the disease, like a PSA. Instead of doing what most people would call the responsible thing and going to see a urologist and having an exam and taking my doctor's advice, I was afraid that entering the centralized, sort of allopathic medical institution would create a cascade of diagnoses that would result in overtreatment. I said, I'm not doing it. I'm going to talk to other men first. And the stories they told of biopsies gone bad, biopsies that led to sepsis infections, of, of prostate ectomies that resulted in incontinence and erectile dysfunction. They scared the crap out of me. I was determined to do whatever I could to reduce my prostate inflammation without telling my family about it, without telling my doctor about it, and just track my PSA. It took me about six months of a ketogenic diet and ice baths to get my PSA down below one. And then a funny thing happened. As I was monitoring this sort of male health panel, my testosterone, it went through the roof. Now I get this report back and it says, Tom, your, your testosterone is 1180 nanograms per deciliter. And it came, you know, with an exclamation mark and it said, out of range, talk to your doctor about this. How did this happen? Usually, most medical doctors think that testosterone, because it's anabolic, is not... It, will sort of um, make your prostate inflammation worse. It's not the way to reduce prostate inflammation. I talked to men who were trying to manage prostate inflammation or prostate cancer who were put on testosterone blockers, but that is a misconception. Testosterone is not antagonistic towards prostate, uh, a healthy prostate after all. And this is very recent research that should be changing the medical opinion, but practices change more slowly than the research does. So I had to go find out, what am I doing with this high testosterone? 1991 in Japan, there was a study where they were using ice baths to recover from exercise, which is a very common thing to do. They discovered among their young men that, who did an exercise bike for like 20 minutes and then did some cold water stimulation, testosterone went down, luteinizing hormone went down. And then for some reason that they don't really explain, they reversed it. They said, okay, we're going to do the cold water stim first, and then we're going to do the exercise. Testosterone went up. Luteinizing hormone went up. It's luteinizing hormone that signals the gonads to produce the testosterone. So after I got my PSA down to below one, and I thought, you know, this is it. I, like, uh, I, I've done it. I can go see the urologist now. And he's going to give me a big pat on the back and tell me how clever I am. That didn't happen. He said, I want one more test. It was for luteinizing hormone. I didn't know what it was. But my testosterone was so high that he thought I must be juicing. And he's about my age, you know, and he probably gets a lot of male clients with low T. And so and probably some of them are lying to him about what they're doing. So anyway, he said, I want to get your luteinizing hormone tested came up off the charts. It turns out that I had, you know, the, the sort of male hormonal function of an oversexed 19-year-old. I sent my luteinizing hormone report to my uro urologist, and instead of getting the congratulations that I thought I was, you know, instead of him saying, well, how did you do it? He's like, okay, you're fine. 
You know, he didn't even want to hear to me. He didn't even want to talk about it. And so I had to go back to this Japanese study to figure out what was happening. When I got out of my ice bath, scared as hell about my prostate, I was cold. This is a very natural thing. And so, you know, I'd swing my mace around. I would do my pull-ups and my push-ups. And then I would walk into campus and teach my class. I was doing the exercise after the ice bath in the exact same way that this 1991 study discovered will boost testosterone and luteinizing hormone. So I wrote an article about it. Then for years, no one read my stuff. I'm, you know, I'm just putting it up at moroscoforge.com and there's like 300 people who read it until December, 2022, when Joe Rogan had David Goggins on. And David Goggins used to be a Navy SEAL and they train in the Pacific Ocean out of Coronado Island and they know a lot about cold water. And Rogan said, well, there's this guy and he goes to my Instagram and he puts that up on the screen and he's scrolling through and he reads the whole story. And he had a prostate and, you know, he was doing this. He says, it turns out there's extreme benefit to doing your ice bath before you do your exercise. And once Rogan told the world that everything our high school football coach told us about, you know, icing our knees or something after a run was wrong, the the article blew up, the interest blew up. I started to get messages from men all over the world who are saying, you know, I was 450. I started your protocol. I'm up to 900 now. There's a 63-year-old man in Massachusetts who used to be on TRT. He measured me. He says, after I saw your article, I wanted to get off the TRT. I decided I was going to go jump in the lake, like literally in Massachusetts where it's cold, and then power walk home. That's his whole workout. He doesn't do weights. He doesn't go to the gym or anything. He's up over 1,200. And he's older than me. It doesn't take a lot of exercise. The order of things is much more important than, than whatever workout it is that you're doing. It's amazing. The, it's amazing in a world where testosterone levels are completely in decline. And uh, so many young men are jumping on testosterone replacement therapy way too early and causing themselves sort of quite... Um, irreversible harm. Just, just quickly for the listener, the the reference range of a testosterone scale is. I mean, I don't know what it's like in the US. In the UK, three hundred nanograms per deciliter is low. Upwards of maybe eight hundred is high. But I mean, I've, I've heard you say before that the reference you, you disagree with the reference range. Is it my correct in saying? Yeah. Um, you know, my lab reports come back now, and they say I'm abnormal. Well, I don't want to be normal, Ben. I want to be better than normal because the reference range is calibrated to the results that they're getting from the general population of men. They're not saying what's healthy. They're saying what's common. And it is increasingly common for men to be unhealthy. So I'm not interested in normal anymore. I'm interested in healthy and there's nothing wrong. You know, last time I had it checked, I don't know, it was like 1040 or something, which is not in the extreme level, but perfectly healthy. Now, my girlfriend has asked me to please not do anything that would further increase my testosterone. She says sometimes she's tired, you know, we were talking <laughs> about fertility and male sex function and said, okay, you know, if I'm over a thousand, I'm fine. I'll stay right there. But 300, 
if a man, especially a young man, is down around 350 or 400 total T, and the doctor said, well, you know, you're still in the regular range, there's no reason to accept being in the regular range where a whole bunch of other unhealthy men sit. I completely agree. And I think it, it needs to be loads more education around that there are protocols in place to actually get a subclinical level up to something much more healthy. I mean, I did read your blog and I, I, <laughs> I did an experiment where I had a cold, a five minute cold shower before lifting weights every day for a month. And my blood work was, I mean, it was pretty good before. I mean, it was, it was off the scale after and, you know, showed it to some friends are like, oh, you're taking something. I was like, well, no, look at my luteinizing hormone my luteinizing hormones through the roof and for the listener if you were to take something exogenous something like trt or steroids or something like this your luteinizing hormone would drop down to basically zero um so it's a, it's a remarkably easy protocol for the listener how much exercise need is, is a walk enough do they have to lift weights what what do they need to do to get this massive boost of testosterone and then i'd love to explore is this something females can benefit from as well Okay, we're going to talk about uh, women in a minute, um, but your experience is wonderful. Every time I post, you know, on Twitter or something about testosterone, these, these Twitter doctors come out of the woodwork and they say, there's no randomized double-blind control study that says the thing that happened to you actually happened to you. It's a bunch of nonsense. The only thing that matters is your N equals one experience. If it's working for you, then keep doing it. You don't need the library to tell you what's happening in your own body. So now from your experience, I can add you to the list, you know, 10, 11, 12 people and with dramatic results, not just marginal results, whether they were healthy or whether they were low beforehand. And I'd love to see your labs. Mm, what I've learned that. from what uh, fantastic from what men are telling me is it doesn't take a lot of exercise. A rule of thumb has emerged since I uh, published that article. It's about however long you spend in the ice bath and about twice as long exercising and you don't have to go big. So for me, I do two to four minutes every morning. I get out. If I did three minutes in the ice bath, I'll do six minutes with my steel mace or I'll get a little barbell out or a kettlebell or something. I'll do some lunges or some squats. This two to one, twice the recovery that you spent in. Now I'm at 34 degrees. I'm at like two degrees C, maybe one, right? It's very cold. And so if you're going a little warmer, maybe, um, maybe the rule of thumb changes. The point that I'm trying to emphasize is a brisk walk, a jumping rope kettlebells. It doesn't take a lot of exercise. Some men will say, well, I don't want to do my weights after my cold. I'm afraid that my muscles will be so tight that um, I'll injure myself. I don't have any reports of this, but it sounds like it's a worthwhile risk to be careful about. Go light. Your after your ice bath, you're exercising to help your body rewarm, to improve the circulation, to open up the blood vessels and allow your limbs to recover from the cold exposure. And this seems to be sufficient to stimulate testosterone production. You're probably aware that, that total T is both physiological and psychological, that there are... Um, psychological experiences like competition that will increase total testosterone levels in men. I think there's something happening about the ice bath. When you get in and it's really cold, you know, Joe Rogan, uh, he says, 
I go that cold because it sucks worse. And I'm like, well, there's a marketing line, you know, buy a Morosco. <laughs> it sucks worse. Uh, but Joe gets it. When you've challenged yourself at that psychological level and you've overcome it, when you emerge from the ice bath, you feel like you have cheated death. So I pick up my steel mace and, you know, I swing it around my head like I'm some kind of a Persian warrior. I think physiologically, there's definitely something going on with my metabolism that supports testosterone production. But starting my day with that sense of like, I'm winning, you know, with that sort of victory is probably psychologically supportive of my testosterone as well. I've, had a, I've long had a theory, which I can't prove, but if you have a daunting to-do list and you conquer that daunting to-do list, if you look at it and scares you a little bit and you conquer it, I'm convinced that there's a psychological testosterone benefit and boost to it. There's a nice line I like from Joseph Campbell. It says, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. And every time I look at the ice bath and every time I don't want to go in there, the feeling I get after it, it, it's a real feeling of momentum going through the day. And that stacked up day after day after day, week after week, month after month. You, you feel like a different person at the end of it. I think it's um, the psychological benefits are just as potent as the physical benefits as well. Um, this sure. is why I need ice. Um, it, Gary Brecker was on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. And, and Gary sells a chiller and he's got like the number one biggest human health podcast out there, right? And Gary says to Joe, well, I haven't seen a lot of evidence that there's any benefit to going that cold. Why do you do it? And Joe says, because he hates doing it. <laughs> he does it to challenge himself psychologically. And Gary's like, yeah, well, there's a lot of evidence that says that cold sucks worse. Yeah, sure. Um, but the point is the metabolic benefits are available to you above 10 degrees C, above the, the in Fahrenheit, mid 40s, you're fine. You're going to activate some brown fat. You're going to get some cold. It is the psychological benefits. If I don't see the ice floating in the water, I don't get what Viktor Frankl called anticipatory anxiety. I don't have that little voice in my head that says, you could skip a day, Tom. Nobody would ever know. You know, you, you'll do go twice as long tomorrow. That little procrastination voice. David Goggins says, there is nothing that will make you question everything about your life, like cold water. And I need that psychological challenge to get all of the benefits of the cold water therapy. What, is the, what have you learned from the cold? I mean, I think when, you, when you're in the cold for that long and it's such extreme temperatures, it's really hard to not, know, not be confronted with your true self. Here's what I've learned. My fears are bullshit. All the things that I'm afraid of, that uh, I think I can't do. All the catastrophes that are rattling around in my mind, all the things that haven't happened to me yet, but still govern my behavior, they're all bullshit. I get into the ice bath and every cell in my body is screaming at my brain, get us out of here, we're gonna die. It activates that fight or flight response. And my brain command it to talk to my toes, to my fingers, to my spleen, whatever it is in my body. This is what cold feels like. We're not going anywhere. You know, get used to this for a couple or three minutes. We're going to stay right here. We're going to control our breathing. We're going to let that dive reflex, take the pulse down, enter that meditative state. And when we're done, We'll get you some blood toes. I talk to my body like this all the time. 
My fears are bullshit, just like the anxiety response that I feel in the ice bath. These anxieties are a lie that my body is telling my brain to try and keep me safe. I mean, I get it that we're wired this way. But when, um, I don't know, I'm meeting with my director at my university for some other thing that I've done wrong, and Ben, this is a pretty regular occurrence, <laughs> um, whatever I'm afraid of in that meeting, bullshit, breathe. This is what a meeting is like, you know? <laughs> this mm. is what a reprimand sounds like. It, anything yeah, yeah. that is happening throughout my day is um, emotionally equivalent of what I just learned in the ice bath. Eleanor Roosevelt said, I know Eleanor Roosevelt, I'm going in a different direction here. You know, she wasn't known for her fitness advice and her bodybuilding and that kind of thing. Eleanor Roosevelt says, do something that scares you every day. Because that's the key to personal growth. That's the key to facing these challenges without letting your catastrophic mind take over. Mm. The late, great Charlie Munger, who passed away two days ago, sadly, one of my all-time heroes said extremes, good or bad, teach the best. And I think he's referring to extremes of outcomes, but I think when you can generalize that statement, I think it applies to health as well. The extreme of pushing your heart rate in a, in a workout or the extreme of the cold or whatever it is, you really learn a lot about yourself psychologically. Um, shifting gears slightly back to the female side of the coin, I think we've been, it's been very like the male side of the coin, I think is... Is obvious. I'm conscious that the, a female listener might think this is great for male, but males. But wh why should I jump in the cold? Why should I try to warm up after with some exercise? Let's talk about um, Huberman's theory of optimizing for fertility as being a way of creating all of these other uh, benefits. The the men in Western industrialized countries like the United Kingdom and the United States have been experiencing a testosterone decline over time. So you take a 25-year-old today, and they have the T levels that would be typical of someone 40 years older than them if you go back several decades. So this is the, the temporal or overtime decay of testosterone levels in the population. What's happening to women? Fertility is declining with age faster than it used to. And so a woman who's like not feeling... Um, I mean, she's feeling healthy at the age of 25, but she's not ready to have kids. And so she gets to be 35. Maybe she was working on her career or whatever. And now she finds that she's incapable of having kids. Some women in that situation feel cheated, feel lied to because their fertility has been declining at this accelerated rate that is analogous to the decline in testosterone levels among young men. What can they do? The most metabolically demanding thing that any human has probably ever done is pregnancy. Pregnancy is a physiological state of insulin resistance, not pathological. That is, it's a, it, the insulin resistance that occurs during pregnancy is natural, and it's part of sort of the antagonism between growth hormone and the action of insulin. To stay fertile, women must caretake for their metabolism. Cold exposure is a great way to do that because it will correct metabolic dysfunctions. But there's still this question of testosterone in women. And there isn't a lot of study that is 
everybody seems to be preoccupied with the testosterone levels of the Italian rugby team or something like this. You know, there are these, these athletic, these sports reasons for studying male testosterone, and nobody is studying female testosterone. Testosterone in women is produced in the ovaries, which are inside the body. And a lot of women don't know that testosterone is also their dominant sex hormone. That is, a healthy woman will have three to four times as much, as much testosterone in her bloodstream as she will estrogen. When they get their labs back, testosterone and estrogen are reported in different units. And so it looks like women have more estrogen, but they don't. When you do the units conversion, a healthy woman will have three times as much testosterone. And yet, it, when their ovaries decline, their testosterone levels decline. And so you might think, okay, this is pretty common. We know that women will eventually reach menopause and that the ovaries will no longer ovulate and that there can be low T in women. And there are no FDA-approved testosterone therapies for women in the United States. And that means a clinician who wants to treat a woman for low T has to adapt a male protocol, which to me makes no sense. They're, they're really, they're making it up as they go along. And I'm not saying it can't help, but it has to be done under the careful supervision of a clinician who knows how to adapt a male protocol to female needs. There is one study of young women, cold stimulation and testosterone. They measure the saliva, uh, sorry, the testosterone in the saliva among these undergraduate women who were doing the cold pressure test. Cold pressure is not whole body immersion. It's just cold stimulation. You uh, typically immerse the non-dominant hand in a bowl of ice water. They compared men and women, and they weren't even doing it for testosterone. That just happened to be one of the things that they measured in the saliva. And they found that cold stim in men, no boost whatsoever, which is consistent with the Japanese study that showed exercise and then cold will drop the T levels. But cold stim in women boosted saliva levels of testosterone. This is the only study that I found. Well, why should men and women be different? In men, the testes are held outside the body. Of course, they respond to cold differently than an ovary held inside the body. So it's possible that women don't even need the, the exercise after the ice bath to get this testosterone boost. What would that do for women? Testosterone is the hormone of lust. The single one, or, or sorry, the single greatest reason for treating women with testosterone therapy is low libido. When the woman feels that testosterone boost, she's going to feel a boost in her sex drive. And so a lot of things happen when a woman starts practicing cold water therapy. She's fixing her metabolism, which will improve her fertility. She's uh, likely, but we don't know for sure, stimulating testosterone production, which will improve her sex drive. So here's a study that the Czech army did, and it's very recent. They took their soldiers and they used my protocol. They said, first, we're going to do the cold water immersion. They went up to the neck, whole body, and then they're going to do exercise afterwards to rewarm. Now, the military has an interest in health and well-being and testosterone, but the Czech army is both men and women. And one of the most interesting results that they reported 
from these soldiers that went through the protocol had nothing to do with testosterone. They said, our sex lives are so much better. Can we keep, even though the study is over, can we keep doing this cold water therapy and exercise? And the Czech army was like, well, I guess so. Sure, if it works for you, that might be because they're experiencing the the testosterone boost. I mean, it's so interesting when you you can break it down physiologically. I mean, because you, you'd have the dopamine increase from the cold, and then you have the testosterone increase on top of that. It's sort of like a it's a two pronged approach to a sort of more happy sex life, I guess. Perfectly segued into my next question. Tell me about love and pair bonding with the cold. Oof, uh, ben, I had an experience. Um, <laughs> the, I'm dating this woman, and uh, we agreed that we're going to go up to Sedona, and we're going to do a photo shoot. She used to be a runway model. This is perfect, right? We're going to promote the ice baths, and it's going to be good for Morozco. Sedona is such a beautiful backdrop. And we had such an argument like the day before that we're supposed to drive up there. And my daughter is supposed to be the videographer and my daughter doesn't even ride with me. Right. Cause I'm all full of resentments and I'm angry and stuff, but we're going to go through with this. The time comes to the end of the day when we're supposed to get into the ice bath together. And we sort of have a little script. We're going to hold hands and we're, we're supposed to like each other, but you see, on the video, the before pictures, and we want nothing to do with one another until my daughter says, okay, you know, action or whatever they say, and we get in. And one minute in, and you can see our expressions soften and we begin to smile. We're staring into one another's eyes and we're breathing together and we're holding hands for the camera. Two minutes in, and we're laughing with one another. Two and a half minutes, she leans over across the ice bath. She kisses me and we start making out. And my daughter says, okay, that's enough. You know, we're done. We <laughs> and we fell back in love. At least that's the experience I had. And so I had to figure out what is going on. Was it the testosterone? Was it the dopamine? Was it the norepinephrine? And all of those things. All of these hormones and these neurotransmitters, they change your mood. It is impossible to be depressed when there's three times the dopamine, you know, coursing through your bloodstream. And there's some good case studies of cold water swimming, curing major depression that was resistant to talk therapy and to SSRIs and other antidepressive drugs. So you're going to be in a good mood. But it turns out that doing a cold plunge with your partner will also increase vasopressin and oxytocin. These are bonding hormones. So Helen Fisher writes about the three brain systems of love, lust, romance, like having a crush on someone, and familial attachment, that oxytocin bonding that, that we can experience with a pet or with a baby or with a sibling. So she says, you know, human beings are capable of these three different systems of love. The word love is so flexible. It encompasses all these ways of thinking. And the ice bath with your partner stimulates the neurotransmitters and hormones that are associated with all three. So John Gottman wrote, and maybe it's a little exaggeration, but he said the biggest myth in marriage counseling is that better communication will, you know, help you feel better about your partner. The reason he wrote that is because communication is cognitive. 
but love is a feeling. You can't talk someone in to loving you. Like, look, honey, I'm doing the dishes. Uh, are you in love with me again? Like that love exists at a deeper level then talk therapy or reflective listening is going to achieve. So I'm not knocking communication. But if you're having like a bump in your relationship, if you're experiencing these negative feelings about your partner, then get into the cold, just shut up about it. Get into the cold plunge together. Hold hands, breathe together, stare into one another's eyes, and then write me and tell me you don't feel differently about your partner before you get out because i've felt it well i mean the uh the work of s Farrell would support that i mean she talks a lot about lots of wonderful things but especially shared physiological states is what you want to try and experience with a with a partner be it different experiences outside the house but again I, it's pretty hard to not share the same same physiological state in an, in an ice bath Thomas, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're coming up to the hour. What, do you, what would you say to someone who hasn't tried cold water exposure? Um, I know it was a big sort of uh, catalyst for your own journey, your own personal sort of uh, pivot, as you said, mid midlife. What would you say to someone who's, I guess, temperature curious and wants to maybe uh, dive into the cold? When Jason and I started doing ice baths in his backyard, um, you know, it's in Phoenix, Arizona, hottest city in the western hemisphere be uh you know 43 degrees c and we have to buy all these bags of ice and we're putting them in well um jason's wife got really curious when we said screw all this ice we're going to build our own machine and now we're fooling around with refrigeration equipment we took over the whole backyard and we're sawing things and soldering pipes together and stuff and she thought there must be something to it for these guys to be so committed she grew up in Florida, and then she moved to Arizona. She's never lived in a cold climate. And she couldn't watch us working so hard on trying to invent an ice bath without becoming curious herself. Her first ice bath was 11 seconds long. And she thought, well, how am I ever going to do this? You know, she experienced abject panic, and she popped up out of that ice bath with like superhuman strength because the the cold stimulated her central nervous system she wanted to get back in she watched what vim's advice was and she thought there was something too aggressive about it you are never going to see me or adrian or jason or anybody associated with morosco with a bullhorn you know saying breathe motherfucker like <laughs> there is no coercion in our method there is no bullying in our method you get in and out of your own volition. And so she developed her own method and she developed the catchphrase, this is what cold feels like. Her approach was take all the emotion down, calm yourself. Don't let anybody push you into it or talk you into it. When you get in, get in like you are a king or a queen of your own volition, making your own decision. And you are being admired by, you know, all the royal subjects that exist in your imagination who are sort of politely applauding your courage. Don't let anybody push you into the ice bath. A great way to start is to just fill the tub with cold water. 
You don't need to buy a Morozco to get going. In the United, the coldest shower I ever took was in London in January. <laughs> and I, I learned a thing or two. When I take cold showers, I no longer let the water on the top of my head. You know, I, I keep it here. And I don't know if you're getting the water out of the Thames or what you're doing in London. Um, but you can start with the bath. Draw up the cold bath water and, and go in if privacy helps. In the, with no shame and no judgment, just get yourself started. And if you don't want to get wet, start by underdressing. Uh, go for a walk around your neighborhood. Go for a walk down to the beach if you live close. You don't have to get into the water. But instead of bundling yourself up with a scarf and everything like that, go on a T-shirt. It's okay if it's just 10 or 15 minutes. You're working towards cold acclimation. You're not trying to be some kind of Instagram star. Mm. Yeah. That's um, it, it, it's so poignant for everyone. I, I personally, the the cold seems to it's boosted my physiological baseline of what seems to be stressful, and things that previously would have stressed me out a bit, less so. I feel calmer. I feel I'm enjoying life a bit more. But I always enjoy life as well. But just uh, amplifying it even further. Um, Thomas, one last question for you, which is uh, inspired by a chat. It's not my question, but I feel I should probably credit him. Patrick O'Shaughnessy asks, what's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? We're all about like a sort of um, redefining health and adding that, that seventh pillar into health being social, um, having a sort of communal aspect to it. So with that spirit in mind, what would you say to that? Um, th that's a very deep personal question. What is the kindest thing? Um, so I'm going to give you a deep personal answer. Um, this is the same woman that um, went and did the couple's plunge when we were having a big argument. Um, I separated from my wife and I can't remember if my divorce was uh, final. Um, and I, we, we were dating, but she has four kids. And so you know, she can't always uh, stay over. And so it was late one night always walk her to the parking lot. I feel like that's my responsibility as a gentleman. And she said, no, 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 let me tuck you in. Certainly not. You know, I, I'm going to put my pants on. I'm going to walk you to your car. She said, I really want to do it. And so I said, all right, since you insist. And she pulled up the covers and she kissed me on my head and she stroked my hair. And I couldn't remember a time as a child when I had been tucked in by my mother in that way. That, um, the realization that I had that deficit of memory from my childhood, it didn't feel good. I broke down and I cried like a baby and I didn't even know why, except I had to process it later and realize that there was some deficit in my childhood. Now, in that moment, she could have judged me she could have said, well, he's crazy. Or she could have said, well, he's weak. Well, he's vulnerable. Like a lot of fears are going through my mind about how this display is sure to kill like her attraction to me. And none of that happened. Instead, right. um, she appreciated the opportunity to be there with me in that moment of discovery. You've probably read some of the articles uh, on my Substack that are not about ice baths. The 
the arc of my career has moved from infrastructure, from concrete and steel. What do we do when the bridges are broken to people? Because resilience is not found in steel, in pavement, in airports. Resilience is found inside human beings. And so I still, uh, you know, I'm going to a conference in Washington, D.C., and I'm going to talk about military infrastructure, and I still do a lot of work with the Office of Naval Research because I'm still an engineer. But my interest has turned inside to the human beings. What about those parts of us that are wounded, that, that require an adaptive, resilient response? I discovered one in myself that day, and I write about that too. And the kindest thing that I can think of in this moment that anyone has done for me is be with me in that experience where I had some emotional flashback to my childhood, which is a very vulnerable thing, without judging me or attacking me in my moment of weakness. I admire a man who can be as vulnerable as you were just then. So massive, uh, yeah, very, uh, very much admire that. I think it was a beautiful answer. And I'm pleased to ask the question. The, um, like, I want to be respectful of your time and know we've come out to the hour. Um, is there any parting thoughts you'd like to give to our listeners or any words of advice or anything you'd like to end on? Where can, where can people find you as well? Well, let me tell you what I'm uh, working on. That's the most speculative thing. Uh, I'm right in this book. Uh, I've written so many articles and I'm compiling them into a book that is going to come out in 2024. Um, and I knew that it would be incomplete because it's on cold water therapy without a chapter on autoimmune disorders. My son, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disorder in which the immune system attacks the cells inside the pancreas that produce insulin. It's irreversible. You, you can get a pump to pump the insulin in, but you cannot restore that function. There are several other autoimmune disorders that are either manageable or reversible, and cold water therapy helps. It helps with fibromyalgia. It helps with rheumatoid arthritis. Adrian reversed her Hashimoto's using cold water therapy. And there are metabolic mechanisms that explain this. So in this chapter on autoimmune disorders, and I go deeper into Parkinson's, into multiple sclerosis, I discover that there is an interaction between vitamin D, cold exposure, and the immune system. Our bodies, especially the United Kingdom is a cold climate without a lot of sunshine, you mentioned. I've been there. I, I believe you. And that means that during the winter, many people will be vitamin D insufficient in the United Kingdom. Cold helps compensate for the consequences of vitamin D insufficiency. And so I say this as a tentative hypothesis that is emerging from the research I'm doing for the book. Now, I listen to Jack Cruz every once in a while. I follow him on Twitter, and I don't understand 80% of what that man says. But the 20% is so helpful in guiding my own research that I can't, I can't stop trying to figure him out. And he's been talking about light and cold for a lot longer than I have in the way that they interact. So I'm going to leave you with this thought that I'm working on. Vitamin D is essential to your metabolic health and to your immune system health. And supplements will work to some extent if you find that you're really vitamin D low. Cold water therapy seems to compensate for a lack of sunshine, for a lack of vitamin D. 
And it makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint, at least for those people living or who have evolved in cold climates. So I'm going to go into this deeper and see if I can decode some of the mechanisms by which they interact. Instead of waiting for me to figure it out, I want you to get your vitamin D checked. I want you, I want you to know what your levels are and what to do about them. Okay. Well, I mean... I, I'm holding back of asking so many more questions down that rabbit hole. <laughs> Maybe part two down the line, we, we can explore that. But We can do it again. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah for sure. I'd love that. It was so fun, Thomas. Really, thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate thank you your for work. having me. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you. And um, it was really good, really good fun. Um, thank you so much. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>